Thank you, band. Good morning. How are we all doing today? Good? Good? Uh, my name is Spencer. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it is, is my joy and privilege to be able to preach uh, to you this morning. It's a part of my job that I do this about once a month, and uh, really excited for the passage that we're going to look at uh, this morning. But uh, a little over a year ago in my life, uh, my wife Amy and I went through uh, probably the darkest season, the darkest a couple of weeks that we've ever had in our marriage. We were uh, pregnant with our second child, and uh, after a number of doctor appointments, we realized that uh, my wife was losing the baby. And so uh, through that miscarriage, through that, that season of a, of a few weeks, um, and then a few months even after that, it was just a very dark time for us. We went through a lot of, lot of pain and suffering and, and tears and sadness, asking a lot of questions. And uh, while we were amidst this darkness, while we were suffering and going through lots of pain, very discouraged, uh, we met with a friend. So uh, if you don't know, Hiawatha has planted a, a few churches, one of them in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, we had a close friend that was a part of that church plant out in Brooklyn. She came back to visit because uh, it was near, near the holidays, and so we got to meet with her. And through her telling us about how this church plant, which is called The Table, through her telling us how the table was doing. It brought us great, great comfort and happiness and joy amidst great uh, personal suffering. And so she shared with us how the church was growing, how their faith was, uh, was being strengthened, uh, how they were loving each other really well, and how God was using their church plant in their neighborhood in Brooklyn. And that brought Amy and I uh, much comfort and much joy, and we were strengthened by hearing about other Christians' faith especially ones that we were close to. And we're going to see that again today in our passage. We're going to see uh, Christians who are suffering, who are going through uh, pain and persecution, looking to other believers, to other Christians, and receiving great comfort even amidst a really, really hard, tough time in their lives. So if you're brand new to Hiawatha, we are in a sermon series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians is, is a book written by a guy named Paul. He's writing back to a church that he planted. So if you're brand new today, I'll, I'll very briefly let you know what's, what's been going on. So there's this guy named Paul. Jesus saves him. He becomes a, a church planner, missionary type. He goes throughout uh, the, the, the known world there, throughout the Middle East, and he goes to cities. He preaches the gospel. He plants churches. They're starting. Uh, they, they grow up. He uh, appoints leaders. And in, in this particular church, in the city of uh, Thessalonica, uh, there was lots of opposition. So he preached the gospel. A lot of people believed, and at the same time, there was great opposition. And so a church was born, but at the same time, this opposition forced Paul out of the city. So Paul and a couple other of his colleagues that helped plant this church, Timothy is, is one of them, they were kicked out of the city. And uh, so Paul is, is far away now, and he's thinking of this church that he's planted these people that he loves dearly, that he calls uh, sons and daughters in Christ. He loves them deeply, and he wants to go back to them because he knows that they're a young church, that they're, they're missing their pastor, their spiritual leader right now, and he wants to go back. But we saw in uh, last week's passage that uh, Paul said, Satan kept me from coming to you. I tried and again and again and again to come back to you, but uh, Satan kept me from coming. So finally, even though Paul couldn't go, he sent Timothy, one of, one of his uh, co-workers in the gospel, sends Timothy back to this church, and uh, he actually is able to go to this church. He spends time with them, and now Timothy has come back to Paul 
and he's giving Paul this report about what he sees going on in this church. This church is still alive. They haven't stopped believing, and they're actually doing very, very well. And this gives Paul great, great comfort, even amidst his own suffering. So today, the, the title of our sermon is Comforted Through Your Faith. So just like my wife and I were comforted through the faith of another church that we, were, uh, that we loved dearly, that we had a great connection with, we're going to see Paul being comforted through the faith of the church in Thessalonica. So we're going to be in uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. It'll be up there on the screen. It's also um, inside your insert in your worship folder. Starting in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see, your, see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ Direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, you speak to us and you teach us through it. We thank you for this particular passage and the encouragement that it can give us about how we're linked to other believers, how you use that to, to encourage us amidst suffering and this great truth at the end of how we are blameless, how we are sanctified, how we are holy in Christ. So speak to us, Holy Spirit, uh, through, through your word and through this message today. In your name, amen. So we see right off the bat, Paul starts by rejoicing and being comforted by this other church, by, by other Christians. And so I want you to see, as, as we're reading this, see a pastor's heart, see a leader's heart, someone who loves these people dearly and has been leading them and cares deeply, deeply for them, like a father would love a son or a leader would love someone that they've been pouring their lives into for months and months and months. Verse 7 starts off by saying, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction. So Paul and Timothy and, and, and the guys that he's with, they're going through distress and affliction. They're going through their own suffering. And Paul's saying, even amidst this, even during this really horrible time that we're going through, we've been comforted. We've been comforted because of your faith. Because we've heard that you have not stopped believing, that the church has persevered, that your faith is turning into these good deeds, these good works, and the gospel is going forth. They're thankful that the church is still alive, that the church did not just die, people lose their faith, but rather that it is persevering and even growing despite the persecution and suffering that the church is even facing itself. Throughout the New Testament, the, the, the church has given uh, many different names, a few of those being uh, the body of Christ and the family of God. And, and with both of these metaphors or these uh, names that Jesus gives his church, we see that we're saved through salvation. We're saved not just by ourselves, but we're saved into a community. We're saved into a body. We're saved into a new spiritual family. And so when, when one Christian succeeds, we all succeed. When one Christian feels joy, 
we all share in their joy. When they have a win, we win as well. And that's what we're seeing here with Paul. That's why Paul can say, I was comforted when I heard about your faith and your love. Because he sees that, hey, we are, we are all part of the same body. We're all part of the same family. So think, you know, uh, this morning I went to my favorite bakery, had a fantastic biscuit with, with cheese and sausage in it. And even though my toes and my knees and my elbows weren't actually partaking of this really great breakfast, my whole body rejoiced with my mouth, right, with my tongue and my nose that, uh, that we were having such, such a great breakfast. Similar way with, with, with the family. My, my son, he's two and a half years old. He just learned his first Bible verse downstairs. So thank you, whoever was his teacher. You guys are doing a great job downstairs in, in the kids' ministry. But my wife and I just rejoiced that, hey, my, my little two-year-old knows, knows a Bible verse. Do not let your heart be troubled. And he even knows what it means. We kind of talk through it. So even though it's his win, even though it's his uh, faith we see growing, the whole family celebrates with them. And that's the same thing with the church. We can even expand this to our situation here. So with church plants, as uh, like I said before, Hiawatha has planted two churches, or if you don't know what that word means, it's just uh, through us. We have, we've sent out some of our own people, and we've started new churches. So the first church plant we had was the table on the far right there with Michael and Nicole Devereaux in, in uh, Brooklyn, New York, the one I referenced at the beginning of my sermon. And then on the left, uh, just uh, about a month ago, uh, we sent out the O'Cells, and they planted Center Church in uh, Fridley, Minnesota. And so similarly for us, when we hear about what's going on at, at Center Church or at the table, we rejoice with them. You maybe are having a really horrible day or going through great uh, suffering, whether it's relational or physical or financial, whatever it might be, spiritual suffering, and you talk to a brother or sister that you love and you hear what God is doing in their church and it strengthens you. It gives you great comfort and great joy. Similarly, when, when we sent them out, some of you were very, very close to the Devereaux or to the Ocells. It's a very bittersweet experience. We, we, we miss our friends dearly. We love them dearly. They were, they were great friends to us, mentors to many of us, and, and sending them out actually cost us a lot. It cost us friendships, cost us time with them, but it was a joyful experience. It was a very happy, uh, fulfilling thing that we were very glad to be a part of because we know that they're spreading the gospel, and that's, that's, their, that's uh, God's call for their lives. And so we rejoice with them. And just like Paul in today's passage, we can rejoice with our friends that we love dearly, that selfishly we wished were close to us, and we're still in relationship with them. But we can still be very excited for them and be comforted by how the Spirit is moving in and through their churches, by the faith that we see in them and the love that's, that's expressed from that faith. Just like we feel about our church planners, we, we feel uh, similarly with our global missionaries. So Hiawatha has been very uh, blessed by God to be able to send out three missionary families, the, the Zeals on the left in Costa Rica, the De Bruins uh, in Berlin, and the Schallers in uh, France. So just like when many of us read their newsletters or their prayer letters every, every few weeks or few months, we get encouraged. Even though we might be going through great suffering or pain, or a very dry spell in our faith, when we hear fellow believers doing well, when we see that their faith is being strengthened, when we see the love that's pouring out of them and how God is moving in their own churches, we are encouraged and we're comforted. We're comforted by their faith and we're comforted by how God is using them 
as an extension of the body of Christ, as an extension of Hiawatha Church. All right, back to our passage. Verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, so remember, Paul couldn't get back to the church, so he sent Timothy on his behalf, and now Timothy has come back to Paul, and he's telling Paul what he has heard. And, Paul, uh, and Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us. We long to see you. So again, Paul, he's thankful for the church, that they still have faith, that they're persevering, even despite persecution, both uh, physical as well as from uh, satanic forces, we're going to see. And he's thankful that their faith, or he's thankful for their faith and their love, and that they still have love for him and a desire to see him, to see him again. So Paul here, he names two, two of some of the great characteristics, maybe the two biggest characteristics of Christians, faith and love. So some of you might be wondering when you see those two kind of linked up together, what, which one is more important, or, or maybe a better question, how do these two things relate? Maybe you are a person who uh, really loves people naturally. You're very compassionate, you're empathetic, you're, uh, you love people very deeply, you're caring, that just comes natural to you. But maybe faith, on the other hand, is tough. Maybe you wrestle with doubt, maybe you, disbelief is just something that's really tough for you believing the Bible or believing things about faith. Or maybe uh, it's the opposite for you. Maybe you have very strong faith. You've been gifted with great trust in the Bible and, and, and in Jesus, and you don't wrestle with doubts. And even amidst uncertainty and suffering, your faith is still strong. Yet for you, maybe loving people is really tough. You'd rather just be far away from people just with you and Jesus in your Bible, or, or it's just really hard for you to be compassionate or empathetic. With people, so so many of us kind of fall in one of those two camps. It's either uh, really easy for us to have faith, but it's tough to love people, or man, I'm really good at loving people, yet I have lots of doubts. Or faith is really tough for me. So how do these two things relate? Faith and love, or in other words, we could say belief and and good works or good deeds, acts acts of love. If you've been around Hiawatha Church for for any amount of time. You have heard us say again and again that salvation comes from faith alone, that we can't work ourselves back to God. We can't do lots and lots of good deeds or show lots of acts of love in order to earn our salvation, in order to get our sins forgiven. Yet, you've probably read in many different passages how Christians are called to live good lives. There seems to be many exhortations and commandments uh, and, and things that Christians should do that you see all throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament. And we're going to see, actually, in, in the rest of 1 Thessalonians, lots of what Paul says are these exhortations, these commands, these things that, that Christians should be doing, that we should be seeing in our own lives and within the lives of the church. So, so what, what, what's going on here? What's the relationship between faith and love, or the relationship between belief and good works? First, let's, let's talk about faith. So Paul, he's He's rejoicing. He's being comforted by the fact that the church still has faith. Their faith, their belief, their trust in God is what is encouraging Paul. Paul's talked a lot about their faith throughout 1 Thessalonians. There's a couple places we've already seen it so far. If you haven't been here before, or just as a reminder, uh, he started off at the very beginning of his letter, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, 
in the Kai, in the Kaya, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So Paul at the beginning says, your faith is known throughout the whole region, how you were uh, a city that, that worshipped all these idols, and now you've turned from those idols, and now worship the true and living God. And a little bit later, the passage we looked at last week, 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, this is Paul speaking again, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So right before the passage we read today, Paul is saying that I, I had to send Timothy because I was worried that the tempter, that Satan, had stolen your faith or helped you believe lies or, or turn from Christ and that all the work that, that we did, the gospel we preached, the investing into people was just labor in vain. And we saw Paul in our passage today three different times again speak about their faith, the importance of their faith. Verse 6, uh, God has brought, or, uh, Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith. Again in verse 7, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And again in verse 10, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul's very, very concerned with their faith. And he's ultimately wanting their faith to be real faith, to be lasting faith, and faith that is strengthened. And that's the case because Paul knows that number one, faith is what saved us, not works. So he's most uh, concerned with their faith. And number two, he knows that if they have true and real faith, that it will always and naturally lead to love. It will naturally lead to genuine good works and especially love for those within the church. James, one of Jesus' disciples, writes about this. He's writing in response to people who say, well, hey, I'm just a person that loves people really well. And another person saying, well, I'm just a person that has really strong faith. And the argument that you are just one or the other, that they, they don't mix. But James argues, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, so this guy over here that says, well, I have faith. I don't really love people very well, but I, I just have faith and that's enough. Can faith save him, this kind of faith that he's about to describe? If a brother or sister, so someone within the church, another Christian, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James here is arguing that uh, in intellectual assent, or just saying, yeah, okay, Jesus was a real person, or yeah, I believe he died on the cross, but if it doesn't lead to any good works ever, like just seeing someone, a brother or sister in Christ, someone within your church with great physical needs, and you don't meet those needs if you can, and instead you just say, oh, go and be blessed. God loves you. Remember that. I'm just using my gift of faith here. If that's all you do, then James is arguing that's, that's not even real faith. You maybe are believing that correct things happen, but you don't have a saving, true faith. You're not showing that you are spiritually alive that should lead to these good works. So true, true faith always leads to love for others. And it might be a slower process. You might still get very annoyed with people or, or would rather stick to yourself, but true faith will lead towards love for others. And it will naturally produce good works. And if it doesn't, then it isn't real faith. 
So Paul is not only thankful for their faith, but he's also thankful and he's comforted by their love, their good works that he sees among them uh, through, through Timothy's report. So uh, his report comes back to, to Paul and it describes the church as full of deep love for each other, so brotherly and sisterly love, love for people within the church, and for Paul. So the church here that he's uh, talking about, that, that uh, Timothy is, is describing, is not just defined by deep faith, but also by a deep love for each other. A brotherly and sisterly love is described here. A deep, familial, family-like love for each other. So just like the church that Paul is writing to 2,000 years ago, we here at Hiawatha are also a spiritual family. Those of us who are, who are Christians, who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We're probably best described as an extended family. Maybe, you know, nine years ago when we first started as a group of 25 people, we maybe felt very much like a close, uh, maybe even nuclear family. But now as God has grown us in numbers, uh, we're maybe best described as, as, as an extended family, but still a family, spiritual family nonetheless. Jesus and other New Testament writers, they describe the church as a family, as a new spiritual family that even at times supersedes biological or physical families at times. So if we're called the spiritual family, let's kind of unpack this. What does that mean? What does that mean that we are sitting next to brothers and sisters in Christ, fathers and mothers in Christ? What, is, what does that mean? Well, let's look at what... what what is a healthy family? Just think of maybe yours is a healthy family. Maybe you know of a healthy physical family here. So what does it mean that the church is called a family? First of all, healthy families, what do they do? They take care of each other, right? In the world, the government or, or maybe, maybe your family, maybe close friends, they take care of you when you are suffering or when you fall on hard times or, or when you're sick. And actually, that's not the reality for many people. They, they don't even have those type of relationships in their life, someone that can take care of them when suffering or, or tragedy strikes. Yet in the church, we take care of each other because we see each other as our spiritual family. Just like a healthy family takes care of each other when, we, when they see needs, we do that as a church as well. Just a few practical examples of how this can look. So within our, Amy, my wife, and I, we lead a community group through practical ways that this is played out as we see each other as a family, as a, uh, even a smaller subset of this extended family here. So we had someone in our group who had surgery and was going to be out for a few weeks. And so we gathered together as a group and we made them meals so that this person could have uh, meals while they were recovering and, and, and couldn't cook. We had another couple in our group, they totaled their car. And so until they could find a new one, we had people in our group lend out their cars so that they could uh, get to work until they got a new one. But other people in our group who have gotten pregnant, and so we've thrown them baby showers as a group. Another, people, uh, another family in our group, their uh, house got broken into just hours before we met for community group. And so the guys, instead of meeting, we went over and helped this guy uh, fix his broken door and, and, and install a new one. So those are just a few examples of what this looks like. But as a church, we take care of each other just like a good, healthy family does. Practical ways for this to happen, uh, especially you're going to see this in, your, in a community group. If you're not in a community group, I, I still strongly encourage you to get in one. One where you can be known by others, where people can see needs, where they can see uh, when you're struggling or when you have things that need to be taken care of. 
If all you ever do is just sit in a pew and, and don't interact with other people, it's going to be hard for the church, hard for your extended family to care for you well. Also get on the table, which is our online community. Practically, it's a great way to be caring for each other. Practically, people share on the table, which is our, it's essentially just a website and an app, where we're able to say, hey, I need a babysitter, or how do you fix this, or I need a ride someplace, or our family's hurting, can you help us out in this way? All right, let's keep moving on. What, what else defines a healthy family? Healthy families, they fight different, right? So in the world, we see that those that are different than us, those that disagree with us, we often call them our enemies. Even think about, you know, in the, the political debates we're having right now, that they're calling the opposite party of them. They're literally using the word enemy. They're saying that, hey, someone who has different idea, ideals, different values, they see things differently. They're not just someone I disagree with, that they're my enemy. Yet in a family, families fight differently. You might pound on your brother, but if someone is pounding on your brother at recess, you stick up for them, even if they're driving you nuts as soon as you get home. Right? Families, families fight differently. They don't give up on each other. In the church, we do the same thing. We might still disagree. We still might be very, very, very different very diverse in many different ways, yet we don't give up on each other. We don't call each other enemies, but we, we stick it out. We also know that when we see people sin against us, we know that the enemy, that Satan is actually our ultimate enemy. He's behind it, not the person that is sinning against us. Also, healthy families, they, they don't give up on each other. So again, in the world, when we see difference, or when you have, when you have friendships, and they let you down, or they're just not meeting your needs, we tend to, to, to leave those friends. Think of kind of some pop psychology or pop popular uh, counseling that says, if, if you have friends in your life that aren't benefiting you, you probably should cut those ties. Brother, in the church, we see that everyone has an incredible value because they're made in the image of God. And when we see people let us down, sin against us, hurt us, instead of seeing them as the enemy, we, we see our own sin in them. And we're thankful to God that he has delivered us from, from being people like that, that he's healed us and rescued us from our own sin that, that looks very similar to the person that has just hurt us. And then finally, healthy families, they value each other. In the world, we only value the friends and the, the uh, connections, the relationships, of people that benefit us, and we easily disregard them when they're no longer benefiting us. But in the church, we value everyone. We see those in the church as our spiritual brothers and sisters, our spiritual mothers and fathers, our spiritual sisters and daughters. And just like in every family, we have crazy uncles, we have socially awkward cousins, and we have black sheep, right? But we still value them. A good family still values them. A good church family still values them. We're patient with them. We don't give up on them, even when the world might. So Paul, in, uh, in the next few chapters, the next few verses, he's going to say some pretty incredible things about the, the church in Thessalonica for, for their love for each other. He's going to praise them that they had this, this incredible, uh, sacrificial, generous, and Christ-reflecting love not just some kind of vague love. It's not just a love that's, that uh, is similar to the world, but it's a Christ-reflecting love. 
Jesus in John 13, before his death, he's, he's speaking to his disciples and he tells them, he says, a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. So right there, if we would just stop, we'd say, well, Jesus, that's not a new commandment. Uh, the Old Testament has commandments about loving each other. So, so if we just stopped there, we would miss out, but we need to continue. The next verse, Jesus unpacks this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also, or just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This Christ-like love. This love like Christ, uh, having a Christ-like love will point to, like it says here, people will know that you are my disciples. You look like me. You love not just your brother, not just your kinsmen, not just your family, not just the friends that benefit you or the acquaintances that give you something, but you love everyone. You even love your enemies. An enemy-type love, the way that Christ loved us. When we love people like that, and we see this in the church in Thessalonica, remember they're loving people, like it says here, outside. Outside of them. So probably the, the same people that are persecuting them. Persecuting them uh, legally, financially, maybe even physically or relationally. And they're loving with an enemy-type love that reflects Christ. It tells the world that, hey, they look like Jesus. They must be from Jesus. So just like Paul, we can be deeply comforted by seeing the faith and the love in other Christians, whether it's Christians across the street or across the pew, whether it's across the city or even the globe. All right, the second thing we see Paul do here, so he's comforted by other Christians, and then we see Paul pray for other Christians. Listen to how he prays. Listen how he how he describes his prayer. Verse 10, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Does that describe you? It often does not describe me. Are you someone who prays earnestly? Do you pray night and day? Not just for yourself, not just God, help me get over this cold. Help me have, have success in my work. Help me do better on my tasks. Help me have a more comfor comfortable life. But are you praying earnestly? Are you praying night and day for other Christians? That their faith would be strengthened, that new churches would be planted, that our missionaries would do well, that our brothers and sisters within our church would grow in their faith, even amidst suffering? Are we praying like that? Paul continues, so verses 11 through 13, probably, most people think that's actually a prayer that he's praying for them, so it's kind of why the, it's formatted there, slid over a little bit. Uh, we're not sure, but that's probably what's going on. So he's saying, we pray for you earnestly, night and day. And let me, let me give you an example of what we are praying for you. Verse 11, now may the God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you in increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So we see that inward love, love for the church, as well as love for all, love for people outside, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So again, in Paul's prayer now, we see both the same thing again. We see faith and love again. Verse 10, he says, we want to see you face to face and supply anything that is lacking in your faith. So remember, think of this as like a pastor, as a leader. 
saying, we left early. We left way too early. I wanted to stay for months and months, maybe even years more, and teach you more about the faith. So Paul prays that he will be able to get back them, to, to encourage them in their faith, and anything that they're still lacking, any truth they don't yet believe, or, or temptations that they're still being tempted by. He's praying that God will complete their faith and give them what they're still missing. Then in verse 12, he prays that their love will grow. He says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. He prays that their love will increase both for the church, for other Christians, as well as for those outside of the church. And he prays that this love would mirror the love that he and Timothy have for them. And even more importantly, that this love will mirror Christ's sacrificial, generous, deep love that he has for them. A love that's both inward and outward focused. Inward focused where we love one's family. We love our spiritual family. We love our church as well as loving outside. Loving those outside of the church. Even loving one's enemies. Loving those who are persecuting us. Which is, again, literally happening to this church. They're being persecuted by people and they're loving them in return. They're forgiving them in return, those people who have brought suffering and have had made their pastor, their spiritual leader, uh, have to leave them way too prematurely. Now let's notice, let's look at Paul's prayer here. Let's, let's notice how he prays or, or, or what he prays. Verse 12, he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. And in verse 13, he says, And he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. So he doesn't pray that the church will work really, really hard at becoming holy and blameless. He doesn't pray that they will stop being apathetic and that they will just force themselves to love really, really well. But he prays knowing that God is sovereign over his church. He prays knowing that God is working behind the curtain, so to speak. That through his spirit, he is working in their hearts already. He prays knowing that God is the one who makes us holy, or, or holy just meaning perfect before him, or sinless, or without blame, or being innocent. God is the one who makes us holy, not our hard work, not following some rules, not the family that we're born into, not by working really hard at some spiritual disciplines, not by anything we do, but rather he knows that we're made perfect, we're made blameless, we're made holy through his Son, Jesus Christ. So kind of the big theological, biblical terms for these are, are, are justification and sanctification. So if these are enormous words that you can't pronounce that uh, are tempting you to kind of check out for a little bit, hang with me just for a second. We're going to unpack these two really important words that you, you, you know probably the theme of what it is. Maybe you don't know the word yet. But these are the two themes or two theological words that, that are describing what we're seeing right here. So first one, justification. I remember uh, as a kid, Sunday school teacher probably taught me, how, how do you remember what this big long word means? Just think of, so being justified, just think of the phrase justified never sin. So being justified means that you are, uh, it's, it's a legal term, you're being declared righteous, declared sinless. So think of kind of a legal term or a courtroom thing. So being justified is, is being 
just as if I'd never sinned. So that's what happens at our salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.25 speaks of this. For our sake, he, speaking of God, made him, made Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The great reformer Martin Luther, he called this idea the great exchange. We exchange exchange our sin, our spiritual death, to Christ, and he takes that on, and we receive his righteousness. We give him our guilt, our sin, our death. He gives us his righteousness, his holiness. Martin Luther writes about this. That is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange... Our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ, not Christ's, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it. Revelation language there. And fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. So here's just a short little chart here that kind of helps us see our visual learning here. So at our conversion... When we are saved, this is what's happening. This great exchange. We are now justified. We give our unrighteousness, our sin, our guilt, our death. We give that to Jesus, or he takes that on himself, and he replaces that with his own righteousness. And we become just as if I'd never sinned. So before God, God doesn't see a sinner. He doesn't see the horrible evils we've done in our life. But instead, he sees Christ's righteousness. Speaking of Martin Luther's idea and how we kind of unpacked it here, R.C. Sproul writes, when Martin Luther spoke of the state of a Christian, he used a Latin phrase, which I can't pronounce, so I just, I'm not going to give it to you. But this is what it means. He used a Latin phrase meaning at the same time righteous and sinner. It maintains the idea of our possession of an alien righteousness. I love that. An alien righteousness, a righteousness not of our own. It's not ours, it's someone else's righteousness, but we have the possession of it. In a legal and positional sense, we are righteous once we are justified because when God looks at us, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. But this righteousness is not something that we have within ourselves or something that we do. It is a declared righteousness. Again, think, think legal terms. It's a declared righteousness. That is why, at the same time, in more of an existential sense, we are still sinners working to put sin to death. We're no longer legally subject to the punishment due our sin. So legally, we're declared righteous. Legally, we can stand. God the Father looks at us and sees Christ's righteousness. Nonetheless, sin is still present in us until we are glorified, until Christ comes back or until we die. This is what Paul is praying for. That God would continue to grow them in holiness. Continue to grow them in their faith and their good deeds. Their sanctification. So that other big word, sanctification, John Piper describes this this long and kind of churchy type word, uh, essentially just meaning progressively becoming more like Christ. So progressively, over time, becoming more and more like Jesus gradually becoming like Jesus or becoming holy, becoming conformed to the image of Christ, little by little, over time, from conversion until Jesus comes back or you die, you, 
Christians he's speaking to, are in the process of sanctification, being sanctified, becoming holy. So justification happens at salvation. We receive Christ's righteousness. We become holy. We become perfect in a legal sense. Yet at the same time, like, like uh, Martin Luther is describing, we still wrestle with sin. We have victory over sin, yet we still try to kill it throughout our whole lives until Christ comes back or until we die. And that process, becoming more like Christ as we go throughout our lives, becoming more holy throughout our lives, not achieving perfection, again, until we die, until he comes back. That is the process of sanctification. We see here in Paul's prayer, he's praying for both of those. And we see, too, that he believes that God is behind all of that. God is sovereign and in control, not just of our justification, not just of our salvation, not just of giving us Christ's righteousness and taking away our sin and putting it on him on the cross, but also over our sanctification, also over and behind the curtains, if you will, or empowering us to become more and more like Christ throughout our lives. Remember what he says. He says in his prayer that he may establish. Not that you may establish, but that he may do it. And again, may the Lord make you increase in love. So the Lord, Jesus is the one that is making them increase in love. Sanctification is going to come up a lot more in the next uh, couple passages, and so I'm not going to steal any more of uh, Chris's material. But uh, he's not here, so I stole just a little. Um, but it's here in our passage too, so, so I had to bring it up. But we're going to unpack this idea of sanctification a lot more in the next coming weeks. So there you go. So Paul believes that God is behind not just the church's salvation, not just their justification, but also in their sanctification, their process of becoming more like Christ. Yet there's a tension. We still have responsibility. Some might argue, or you might argue, well, hey, if, if God's behind making me more like Christ, then why don't I just sit on my butt and twiddle my fingers and, and let him make me more like Christ? But we're actually going to see all throughout the Bible and the New Testament, Christians are called to do things. We're exhorted to do things. We're given commands. We're reminded of who we are in Christ and told to, to, to live like that. We're told to stop sinning. And so there's this tension within the Bible that behind the curtain or, or the, the power behind it is God moving, but we're still called as humans. We still have responsibility. We're still supposed to do and not do things. We're going to see uh, more in First Thessalonians, the last two chapters especially. Paul goes on and on and on about what the Thessalonian church should do and what they should not do. He tells them, stop sinning. And he tells them, love each other even more. He tells them to stop doing things, and he gives them commands. So there's this tension between God's behind it, God's the one that's doing it, yet at the same time, humans still have responsibility. We still call each other to love and good deeds. This is often the case in lots of Paul's letters. He'll start the beginning of his letter saying lots and lots and lots about the gospel or our identity in Christ. And then he'll end his letter with lots of therefores. Because you have been raised with Christ, now live like it. Because you are now forgiven of your sins, now go forgive people. Because God has shown you mercy, now Christians should naturally show mercy to other people. Because our God was gracious with us and generous with us, you should now be a generous person. It's, not, it's rarely flipped the other way around. Rarely do we see, go be a generous person. We see, because God was generous with you, and because his spirit lives within you, naturally you're going to be generous. 
Live like you are. It's kind of like the idea of, of a, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Okay? Caterpillar, former life, butterfly, new life. A butterfly could walk all over the place. Right? They could go from one tree to the other just by walking. But that'd be kind of stupid, right? You now have wings. You're, not, you're no longer a caterpillar anymore, and that's often what Paul does in his letters. He says, you once were a caterpillar, but now you are something different. You are now a butterfly. Live like it. Stop walking from tree to tree, from flower to flower. You now have wings. Live like it. Live like your new nature. So we see this tension between God's behind it, he empowers us to do it, yet we're still called to do it. We still have a responsibility. Finally, at the conclusion of Paul's prayer for the church, he reminds them, and us in extension, that in Christ, we're both blameless, we're both perfect, we're both holy. Now in Christ, and we will be when he returns. In Christ, we both have justification and sanctification. Verse 13, he ends his prayer with, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. We're going to see a lot more later on in this letter about uh, Paul talking about Jesus' second return. So we're not going to say much more about that today. But here we see that Jesus, he is coming back. Paul reminds the church, Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he will fully establish our hearts as blameless in holiness. In another one of Paul's letters, he reminds us of our place where we were apart from Christ and how God worked to, to change that. Colossians 1, he writes, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So apart from Christ, that describes us. Whether we realize it or not, we were, apart from Christ, we were alienated from God. We were distant from God. We were not his friend. We were far off. And not only that, we were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So think of that. In that state... God has now reconciled us to, back to himself in, in his body of flesh by his death. That's how he does it. That's how he reconciles us back to himself by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So not when we were a lovely, cute little baby or a really good person that does a lot of things to make God pleased with him, but when we were aliens, when we were hostile to him, when we were doing evil deeds, when we were far off, he chose through his death, to bring us back to himself and to make us holy, to make us blameless, to make us perfect. And some of you today are still thinking, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. I can't even forgive myself. I've done horrible, horrible evils in my life, and I hate myself for it. I could never forgive myself for it. There's no way God could make me blameless or clean or pure. Even uh, if that's you today, Paul ends his letter, because there's probably many people in, in Thessalonica also feeling that same way. Paul ends his letter with this promise. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. God does it, and it's going to happen, and he's going to do it completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely Jesus calls you a Christian today, and he said he's going to make you blameless. He's going to make you clean. He's going to make you perfect, and he is not a liar. And he says he 
will surely do it. As we leave here today, kind of three takeaways for us. First, follow the example of Paul. Be comforted, be encouraged, even when you're going through suffering, really horrible times, dark times in your life, painful times in your life. Be encouraged by other Christians, especially ones that you are in relationship with, whether it's people in your community group, uh, friends from Hiawatha, people within our church, or whether it's other churches that are far off, whether it's our missionary friends or, or church planting friends. Just like Paul did, be encouraged by the faith and by the love that you see in other Christians. If you don't have that in your life, join a community group. Join the table. Out uh, that yellow poster there, we have our missionary families, and we print their newsletters. Uh, grab the newsletter and read about their faith and love. Read about another church and how God is using them, and be comforted even amidst a tough time in your life. Email our church planters and, and ask them what's going on. Be encouraged by that. Secondly, follow Paul's example of praying earnestly night and day, for the faith and for the maturity of the church. Notice, too, Paul doesn't pray that, they, that their persecution will stop, that their suffering will stop. Not bad prayers, but what does he pray? He prays that their, their faith would grow and that they would mature in their faith and their good deeds. So do that. Follow Paul's example, especially for Christians and especially for churches that you are in relationship with, that God has placed in your life. And finally, third, like we said at the end of Paul's prayer today, trust and rest in the truth that God is the one that sanctifies you. God is the one that makes you become more and more like Jesus over time. He's the one that grows your faith and sustains you. He's the one that will help you increase in love for brothers and sisters in Christ as well as for people outside of the church. He is the one that will make you blameless before him. And he will do what he says he will do. This is brand new for you today. He offers that for you today. If you're not a Christian today and you really do feel dirty or sinful or you know the evil that's in your heart, he offers forgiveness. He offers cleansing. He offers to make you blameless. He offers to save you into a spiritual family that will take you and help you become more and more like Christ over your life. And he promises to give you the power to do that. You don't have to do it on your own. We're going to end with Paul writing to another church, the church in Philippi. He writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these great, great promises that we do not have to worry, but that we can rest in the truth and the promise that you, you began a good work in us, us here who are Christians, who have been justified, who have Christ's righteousness, you who began good work in us, you will complete it. You will help us persevere to the end. You will empower us. You will give us a spiritual family to help us mature and grow in our faith. Help us to believe that. Help us to live that out. Increase our faith and give us great love for each other and for those outside of our church as well. Pray this in your, your saving, powerful, sanctifying, justifying name, Jesus. Amen.